In the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus Christ is shown as the true King of all creation who ushers in the Kingdom of Heaven. Matthew's Gospel also gives us a clear and powerful picture of discipleship with all of Jesus' radical demands on his followers in this hostile world. Pray with me as we begin. Uh, God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Amen. Good morning. And um, we are in a new sermon series, as you hopefully can tell. And we had a narrator do this. I wrote it out, picked the person that we would pick, and I thought she had a great voice. If you don't know who she is, I'll give you a hint. Her name starts with K. And I told her I would say this. Uh, so I texted her, I said, oh, you know, I'm going to say this. And then she texted back, wah, wah. So I guess it wasn't funny to her, and it's not funny. Anyway, but um, we are in a new sermon series. And when, we're do when we were kind of transitioning or ending the last sermon series, someone came up to me and said, someone here, said, you know, it's good if we finish off. And I wish you kind of did like a clap offering. That's a you know, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. We finished Exodus in 25 weeks, and it really was by the grace of God we were able to finish. And we can see not just parallels, but God teaching us literally throughout our journey. So why don't we just give a clap offering to our God? And so now we're in this uh, series on Exodus. And, I'm sorry, on Matthew. And when we think of Matthew, a lot of times when we see the passage that we've just read and heard, uh, the first images that come up is what? Or what? It's Christmas, right? It's Christmas. But I'm going to ask that as we start this series on Matthew, that we don't just associate it with like that warm, Christmassy feeling or something seasonal, but rather let's pray, and I'm going to ask you that you pray that we take on this book, and for myself too, especially if you've grown up in the church, we've heard this passage a lot, a lot. But if, especially if you've grown up in the church, let's pray that we got fresh eyes and a fresh heart to receive what God has for us, our church, his people, and what he's doing even today in this age, like right now. And for that to happen, I do think that we need to continue to be humble before God and say, God, please teach me open my eyes, open my heart, so that I can understand the word. And uh, to be honest, even for myself, I was listening to this passage, I, even when I'm driving, just cat it on repeat on Matthew chapter one. And then once it goes into chapter two, it's just a repeat chapter one. And at home, I'd just be reading and reading it over. And I gotta tell you guys, if we start doing this, it's, it's just amazing to me. It was fascinating, just reading the word over and over. Um, letting us sink in the power and just how profound it is and just how amazing it is that Matthew is telling, what, what Matthew is telling us is just outstanding. It's spectacular. And so one of the things that we want to do is um, you, you hopefully got an insert from the bulletin on your way in. I wanted to provide this every week for each one of you so that you could take it home and that you can uh, have a family worship at home. So if you are um, going to join us in this sermon series, I'm very happy that you can join us. 
I want you to take this uh, insert home. There's, um, there's a response song, so you know what song we're going to sing at the end. And then there are going to be, there's going to be a theme and then the three points. In the three points, there should be a little space for you to take notes. But at least once a week, I want to encourage you. Uh, gather your family together and then give worship to God and go over these three points, go over the Bible passage, go over the theme, and sing the song together. I think it's going to be a really healthy and a time where we'll grow spiritually. So I wanted to do that for you, and we're going to provide these inserts for you uh, every week. And so you have that with you, and so hopefully we can uh, really have a good time here in uh, the Gospel according to Matthew. So Matthew was written around uh, 50 AD to 80 AD, around that period. And depending on where you went to seminary, uh, it changes. So if you went to a more uh, cons- conservative seminary, probably 50, a little bit more liberal, maybe 80. Uh, of all the books that I've read and the commentaries that I studied, I think it's before 70 AD. So I think 50 is closer to 80 only because of the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. And when he mentions the destruction of the temple, it's very kind of just factual and there's no emotion. But if something like that really happened, just having a one blipper in the letter or the gospel would, would have been weird. So for me, it doesn't really make sense 80, 80 uh, more like 50, but it changes a lot of stuff like when Mark was written then and things like that. So, but Basically, it's 50 to 80 AD. But who was it written to? Who was it written to? It was written to the Jewish audience. So Matthew, of all the Gospels, and I think all Gospels are very beautiful. It's like it's presenting one Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's presenting four dimensions or four facets, like a beautiful jewel that we're to see. Matthew, in especially, is, was written for the Jewish people. As an audience, so you see a lot, a lot of Old Testament references. Uh, the Jewish people don't call it the Old Testament; they call it their own scriptures. So you'll see a lot of references to the Hebrew Scripture, and uh, you'll see that uh, a lot of the stuff that we'll see will point back to the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. And so this Hebrew Scriptures or Old Testament is part of the Bible before Jesus was born. Its writings were completed around 400 BC, and that's where you have books and letters like um, Malachi or Ezra or Nehemiah. If you've been joining us in our Saturday morning prayers, we've been going through Nehemiah. And it was written, um, well, all these books were written like hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus' birth. And if you could take all of these Hebrew scriptures and all the Old Testament writings, and then you go over prophecy after prophecy of what the Messiah should be like, then there was about 350, 350. And so there was a mathematician back in the day, his name was Peter Stoner, and uh, he calculated what are the odds of one person fulfilling, let's just say, eight of these prophecies, like fulfilling eight of these prophecies. So he took eight of these prophecies like, The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Um, Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. So he just took eight eight of these prophecies. He calculated, uh, and the word in his book, so if you really wanted to look at it, you could see it. Uh, But eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by one person, the mathematical probability would be one in one, 100 quadrillion. 
So just fulfilling eight of these prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion. Uh, the chances of you winning the mega millions is one in 302.6 million. Million. Jesus fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion. You have more chances of winning the mega millions multiple times than this prophecy coming true exactly, just eight. But then one person fulfilling 48 of these prophecies, he calculated it would be one chance in 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros. I don't know the number for that exactly. I just, I was looking at the numbers and I got, I got 1 million, billion, trillion. And I was like, what's after trillion? Is it zillion? It's not zillion. It can't be zillion. Oh, I get it. It's tri, so quad, quadrillion. Then there's quintillion. And then it goes on septillion and things like that. Um, but one, one chance in 10 to the 157th power is 48. So what are the chances that one person would fulfill over 300 of these prophecies? Just mathematically speaking, you would think, wow, if this actually happened, that's something to reckon with. In the very least, if there are prophecies thousands of years old, all the way to 450 years ago, prophecies that have been told and been shared, especially by the Jewish people and the Israel nation, and then we see it happening and it's starting to be fulfilled, it will start to do something. In the very least, you would have to reckon with it. And this is what Matthew is doing. Matthew is starting off with some incredible claims to his readers about the person of Jesus Christ. And remembering that this gospel account was intended for Jewish audiences, there are some fascinating nuances that we get. If you're with me and you're with us and you're like, oh, I, Exodus was amazing. I remember Genesis was great. Even just those two books, when we put it together, this just first chapter opens up and it's insane. Um, so the three points here are in the beginning, what's in the name, and finishing the story. So in the beginning, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's how, that's how our chapter started, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you look at the actual Greek words for genealogy, it's the word genesis, genesis, which is where we get the word genesis, genesis, right? So it would literally say the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. This is really interesting because if you go all the way down to verse 18 that was read today, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And the birth, that word is also Genesis. It's Genesis. So we see here two words. And every time in this chapter, when we see something happen twice, that's something to kind of be like, ooh, why did it happen twice? There's, there must be some kind of special meaning to it. And so we see in verse 18, it literally is written, now the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so it's not just a genealogy. It's not just a birth story. It's not just about Christmas time, but it's about the genesis. So Matthew begins the account of Jesus' Jesus's life with his origins. And these words would especially come true if you're reading it in the Greek and you were familiar with the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew account. And so if you're reading these words, it would allude to what? When you heard Genesis, what would it allude to? The book of Genesis. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. 
And so you keep this like, oh, he's saying the word Genesis, and you keep it in mind. And so keep it in mind. And now when we use the word Genesis, it means origin, right? And today it could kind of be like a loaded statement, right? And actually it might cause some people offense. Um, Questions like, where are you from? And then the response after you give them, uh, I'm from New York City actually. Uh, and then they ask you, no, where are you really from? And so some, they could, it could generate a little bit of offense. Uh, oh, I get what you're really asking. So if someone goes, oh, where are you from? It's like, I was born in New York City. If you know St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan, and someone else was born here, downtown Manhattan, now it's closed down. It's very sad. It's all boarded up. But uh, I was born there. And then they would ask, that's fascinating. No, they wouldn't say that. They're like, no, where are you really from? Like, oh, I get what you're asking. My parents are from Korea, right? And they're like, oh, I get it now. And so barring the people who intended it as an offense, what are they really asking? And these days, I think I got enough of that so I don't get offended as much. So if someone asks, where are you from? So I'm at the gym. They're like, what are you, Chinese? It's like, close, but not really. I'm, I'm Korean. Uh, and they're like, okay. And then we'd have a conversation. But barring the people who intended it as an offense, what are they asking? Um, and by the way, some people do intend it as an offense. And so you would think, oh, in America, people are so backwards. Actually, the most offensive ones that I got were outside of America from Koreans in Japan. That's weird, right? So when I was in Japan, this guy, this, uh, this person that I saw in a Japanese church comes up to me, he's like, you must be Chinese. I was like, I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean. He's like, no way, you have a face like a Chinese. I was like, what does that even mean? I don't know what that means. And so I was like, okay, but I assure you that I am in fact Korean, 100%, right? Not that I should be offended or anything like that, but why are you saying it like that? But, and, and so um, it's not in America. It's actually when I travel, I find the most interesting conversations. But barring people who intended it as an offense, what are they really asking? Aren't they asking you for your origins? And why are they asking for your origins? Isn't it because they want to know how you were shaped, how you were raised, what kind of parents you had, um, what kind of culture you might have grown up in? So I, I don't really take offense to that question unless you meant it as an offense. And after a while, I'd get it. It's like, boom, that's okay, I see what you're doing there. But so why would you ask these kinds of questions? If you really think about it, you wouldn't ask these questions just to find out the past for the past's sake, for its own sake, but knowing the past, knowing your past, knowing your origins, illuminate something about you in the present. Does it not? So knowing your past would illuminate the present so I can learn more about you by learning about your origins. Matthew is the same. Matthew is the same. Uh, my dad once told me that he met a man when he was growing up in Korea who was much older than he was, much older. And he asked them about his family origins. Back then it wasn't offensive to ask that. So he asked them about his family origins and he asked them, what's your last name? What's your clan? What, part, what clan are, are you from? And what's your first name's uh, I don't know what you call it exactly, but there's a first, there's like two syllables or Chinese characters to a Korean first name, and one gets passed down or one gets changed with each generation. 
And my name should have been Tay something, uh, something Tay, excuse me, something Tay, but it shows you what generation you are. And so his, his was Zhang, right? And so he asked him, what's your first name? And after he shared it, this older man actually bowed down. He was surprised and he bowed down to him like this because he saw, he saw that by knowing the clan, by knowing the last name, by knowing this first name, he saw that my father was actually one generation older than he was. So he would say, you're an elder, you're my elder through your genealogy. And so that kind of surprised my father. It stayed with my father and he would share that with me when I was younger. And right now we may not have such a high view of our heritage, but past and past, but this is actually a recent phenomenon that we don't want anything to do with our heritage and past. It's like, I'm not this, I'm just this, I'm me, you know? That's kind of a recent phenomenon. But all throughout history, this was not the case. So Matthew selects stories here in the first few chapters that we're gonna go over in the first few weeks of this series to highlight the origins of Jesus because it will significantly help you to understand who Jesus Christ is. Now, as Matthew presents Jesus to us, he's going to present Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all Jewish prophecies of the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Not only that, he's going to present Jesus as someone that is going to be even more than what the Jewish people had imagined their Messiah would be like, and more than even you or I could have ever imagined a savior would be. So after every sentence, you would read like, whoa, that's insane. Jesus just, wow. And that's how it would, because it was like that for him. And you can see that here. Why is it so important that Matthew start out this way in the beginning? Because Genesis was a story about who? Genesis was a story about our creation, was it not? But who was the main character in Genesis? It was God. If you wanted to know the purpose of humanity and humanity's role in this world, you had to see what kind of character or person God was. For were we not made in his image? And was not humanity then given a commissioning or an authority to steward the world? And so with all these allusions to Genesis, Matthew starts presenting to us, if you want to know who you are, Right? If you want to know who you are, if you want to know what your purpose is, if you want to know what you need to do in this world, then you need to know who created you. And so Matthew is presenting to us now, if you want to know who you are, you really need to know who Jesus is. And we'll see even further than that. Now, it's only through knowing Jesus will we grasp the truth about who we are and what our purpose is. So these stories about Jesus' origins are not just cute stories about Christmas that we tell to each other once a year. These are stories to show us, this is what you need to know about Jesus. Only then will you know who you are and what you were meant to be, or who you were meant to be. And so we go back down to verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed, Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So they were in a place called Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town. Uh, it was about, and now archaeologists have dug up Nazareth and then they see it's about like 500 people at most, right? And so if you lived in a town like this, you would know everybody. You know, in, in a sense, there's about 150 people here 
And then if you continue to live together, spend time with each other every day, you would know everything about everyone. And 500 people is a very small town. The feeling that you would have would be more like an extended family rather than like a town where you drive around and be like, hey, I think that's our neighbor lives on, you know, Podunk Avenue, that kind of thing. Uh, but this would be like a very small feeling, like an extended family. And so it's in Nazareth, Joseph and Mary were betrothed to be married, right? They were betrothed. And then so what happens back then is when you're about 10 to 13, uh, families get together and they start talking about marriage. Um, this again is only recently do we have this uh, idea of love being a motivator for marriage. There are a lot of people that are looking for marriage. There are a lot of people who recently married. There are a lot of people who have been married for a long time. But even if you are you know, in that camp, then the idea of love being a primary motivator for marriage uh, only began to become popular like in the 17th century, in the 18th century. And there were famous instances that we read about, maybe even in the 12th century. But by the time the 20th century came, the 1900s, this idea of marriage out of love really became popular. But that means throughout most, the vast majority of history, marriage was about two families getting together and they were arranged. And so when you grow up in a small town, so you could just imagine, when you grow up in, you're growing up in a small town, and once you hit about 10 to 13, two families get together. It's like, you know, it'd be good if my son marries your daughter or my daughter marries your son. And they agree. And then they start preparing themselves. And they would prepare themselves to get married until about the, uh, their mid to late teens. And then they would get, really get ready for that wedding day for about one full year. So it was that time. It was that time when they were about to get married about a year before and then so this is what happens. Joseph and Mary, we, we should understand, they probably and most likely, there's no reason not to believe otherwise, is they knew each other for a very long time. And so when Joseph wanted to break off the engagement, it says this in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is really interesting because if you listen to what is being said what word was used to break off the engagement? It's divorce. Isn't that weird though? It's engagement. For us, divorce is if we, uh, we would refer to divorce if we sever an actual marriage covenant. But here we see that it's just as serious in the engagement process. So let's recap. Years of knowing each other, years of getting ready to marry. Now at the final stages before the wedding, you find out your fiance is pregnant. And then you're like, um, what? So if you think any kind of Korean drama is crazy, I think even before K-dramas became crazy, this is crazier. It's like all of a sudden, like the person that you've been engaged with, you grew up with, you play with, you knew all your life, like almost like a next door neighbor, all of a sudden she's pregnant. And then you're like, what? And then she comes up to you, it's like, it's, um, it's not what you think. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> right? And so you can imagine all this stuff is going on in Joseph's head. And mind you, Matthew is kind of like uh, from Joseph's perspective. And if you want to know a little bit from Mary's perspective, Luke has a lot of Mary's perspective, right? And so we hear like, what? And so Joseph 
didn't want to put her to shame. He was, it says he was a just man. And that's really interesting. He was a just man. So if someone else gets pregnant and I'm engaged to this person, then I have, a, I, I have every right legally to divorce this person or not go through with the marriage. But because, he, so because he's just, he didn't want to do that and put her to shame. So thinking about it, there's something that we're taught here. Justness or justice just doesn't mean legal. A lot of us think if it's legal, it's okay. And that's not true. That's not true. And that's something we got to think about. What is our standard here? And Joseph here gets it right. I think he gets it right. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's good. He had every legal right, but he didn't take the legal action. So we see that Joseph is doing this because he cares for Mary. Uh, but did Joseph believe her? Did Joseph believe her when she said, Holy Spirit? Like, how did you get pregnant? It's like, oh, Holy Spirit. Did he believe her? No, he didn't believe her because it took an angel to convince him. And so I want to take a quick break here. If Matthew wanted to tell a story, so look at, look at all this drama that's going. If Matthew wanted to tell a story about the savior of the Jewish people, is this the kind of story you would tell? Is this the kind of story you would fabricate to tell? If Matthew wanted to make this up and say, you know what, I'm just going to make up a story about Jesus. He's going to save the Jewish people. He's going to be the Messiah, the Messiah, right, that they've been waiting for. Is this the kind of story that you would fabricate? There's scandal. There's this odd element of, oh, it's the Holy Spirit, right? And so what would you think? And even just going through like some of the Old Testament stuff that we've read, you would think this is more reminiscent of Greek mythology, not Jewish religion, not, not the religion that God passed down, not the laws that he passed down, not what he showed. Because it was, it was Greek gods who would have sex with humans, and then you have Hercules, and then you have Disney movies, right? All this stuff happens so out of Greek, movie, uh, Greek mythology, and these were kind of reminiscent. So Matthew must have known this is a little really reminiscent of Greek mythology. But why would he write it, though, if he was trying to appeal to a Jewish audience? An audience throughout history that was known for rejecting pagan beliefs and pagan religions and make it sound like a myth. Initially, initially sounds like a myth. Would he do that? And the answer is no. You wouldn't do that unless, unless you were preserving some kind of history, unless it was true. That's why I said initially, because there is a key which makes this particular story absolutely distinct from all other myths or other religious stories. Who is the divine agent that brings forth this birth or origin of Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice, just like Genesis is mentioned twice. So why didn't, why didn't Matthew just write, by the power of God, you know? By just like Shazam, or, you know, and then boom, she was. But why was it the Spirit of God? Because if you look at the things that were mentioned twice, so far, what were the things mentioned twice was Genesis or Genesis, and then now the Holy Spirit. If you think about Genesis, Holy Spirit, Genesis, Holy Spirit, where do you see Spirit mentioned in Genesis? In page one, in page one. So if you open up Genesis and you go to chapter one, verse two, it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What was that reminiscent? What did that teach the Jewish people that before the creation of life, the spirit of God was there, almost like incubating, ready to go. 
And you see here, um, this is exactly what's happening. Why spirit? Because unlike these Greek myths, it's not about sex or copulation. This was about so much more than that. What was it about? It was about creation, meaning the generation of life where there wasn't once life. It means that there was something happening here that is utterly unique without precedent. Matthew's almost like yelling at his listeners and readers, pay attention, pay attention, because this is insane what's happening. And this is what we now know and refer to as the virgin birth. So what's in the name? In verse 20, it says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I've talked about meanings of names a lot for the, over the past like year. And so we've gone over what Eugene means, means good and noble, generous, kind, awesome, good, but then all these things. I thought I, thought I would take another name. And so just a random name I was thinking of, why not Esther? Let's pick a name Esther, right? <laughs> Only because there's about eight Esthers here, but Esther is a Persian name, and Esther means, uh, or refers to as a star, right? So you could even think about a star, right? But Esther, um, and then we know of Esther in the Bible, right? There was a star like Queen Esther, and she would save her people by lighting a way that would save them from genocide. And you guys know the Esther story in the Bible? If not, it's a great book. Uh, but Queen Esther was originally named Hadassah, which means myrtle tree. So Esther, which means, which is from Hadassah, it just means your big old tree too. But um, myrtle tree was a very pretty tree and it would bloom pretty flowers. So a lot of Jewish people would use a myrtle tree to symbolize life and fertility in their weddings and things like that. But I would go, I did a little further digging and Esther in the Hebrew, sounds a lot like Hester, with, a, with just a sound, a slight sound right before Esther, right? So Hester, in Hebrew, means hiddenness, hiddenness. This is pretty crazy, right? So even, even though you could be a bright, shining star, there is a hiddenness about you. And we see that actually play out in Queen Esther's life, where she hides the fact that she's Jewish, but she lights up the way to save her people, and you're just like, you know, if you if you know Esther. Anyway, so I did that uh, just to see that names play an important part, right? Names play an important part, and this time in verse 20, he goes, "She will bear a son, and you shall call his name." This is she's, the angel's talking to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, and Jesus we've learned comes from Yehoshua. Yehoshua. Um, because it was first Yeshua, but it comes from the word Yehoshua, where we get our English name, what? Joshua. Very good. I'm so happy, like three of you paying attention. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. But um, it comes, we have Joshua, right? Yehoshua, it, it means uh, Yeho, which was short for Yahweh or God, and Shua, which means uh, will save, right? Or to save. So Yehoshua means God saves, or God will save, Yehoshua. But over time, so there was over a thousand times, so a thousand years, if you say Yehoshua really fast, and the accent is on Shua, right? Uh, Yehoshua, Yehoshua. If you keep on saying it really fast, it starts getting shortened. What does it get shortened to? 
Yeshua, right? Say, say Yehoshua really. Just, just say, Yehoshua. please, just humor me. <laughs> say Yehoshua right now. Ready? One, two, three. Yehoshua. Now in your head, just say Yehoshua really right. Yehoshua, Yehoshua, Yehoshua. He goes to Yeshua. And then, so Yeshua is the shortened version of Yehoshua. From Yeshua, we got our Greek Yesus. And then uh, all of a sudden, the Y turned into a J in the 1600s, and then we have Jesus, right? And so this is what happened over time. I'm, I'm not even kidding. They made up the letter J in the 1600s, now we have Jesus. But uh, if you are in any kind of uh, East Asian language, they still kept the E-S sound, so we have Yesu or Yesus and that kind of thing. But Yeho, which means Yahuashua, means to save. And, and you go, the angel tells Joseph, you shall name him Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So what's the meaning of Yeshua? Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. What is Yahweh saves going to do? He's going to save. Do you see what's happening here? Isn't that insane? Wait, I'll spell it out a little bit further. So some of you aren't here. I just got to uh, turn on that lamp. Uh, but um, his name is Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. But the angel says his name is Yeshua because he will save. So who's saving? Is Yahweh saving or is Yahweh saves saving? Do you see what's happening? Even from the very beginning, you see here something like even before the word hypostatic union came out, if you took seminary, it's theology 101. Matthew is showing us a meaning of his name that speaks to not only his destiny, but his identity. So who is going to save? If someone asks you, who is going to save? Is Yahweh saves going to save or is Yahweh saves? Question mark. Does Yahweh save or is Yahweh saves going to save? And the answer is yes. The answer is just yes to that question. Is Yeshua going to save or is Yahweh going to save? And the answer is yes, because this is what is going on. So who is this human who has no earthly father, who is being created by the Holy Spirit inside this Jewish teenage girl whose name is Yahweh saves, but he is going to save. Now who is he saving? It says his people. Who are his people? Where does this kind of all bring us back to? Right, Exodus. God's people are distinct. They are chosen by him. But who did he choose to start here in Matthew uh, goes to Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam, but Matthew goes to Abraham because Jewish people are his audience. Who are God's people? People who descended from Abraham. Abraham was called out by God. And so Matthew starts Genesis with Abraham and then David signaling to the reader, if you're listening to this and you were reading about all the prophecies of Jesus, you're waiting for the Messiah, you're waiting for the Savior, you're waiting for someone to come and save your people, this would go ding and it would, it would ring in your mind like, oh my goodness, this is what he's saying. And what is he saving them from? What is he saving his people from? Their sin. Humanity fails. Abraham is called. Does he fail? Yes. Ishmael uh, barters his wife away. Is my sister. The list goes on. Um, this tribe or people gets enslaved into Egypt. God calls them out of Egypt, gives us this incredible Torah, right? The law. And then they, they have this covenant with God. Do they fail? 
Yes, golden calf, right? Uh, God calls out a particular line then to be king over Israel, to rule faithfully and well. Do all of these kings fail? Answers, yes. So all these lands, the people, uh, this, all of this lands the people of God in exile. And that's kind of where the story ends. So I'm sure there, uh, if you did Nehemiah and Ezra with us, um, they temporarily build the walls of Jerusalem again, but do they manage to get Israel's sovereignty? No. So do they fail? Yes. But this is where the scriptures end, which is really weird. But if you're paying attention, there's no ending, right? In fact, all throughout scriptures, there are prophecies of the one who would come that would save and restore Israel or God's people. And all of these over 350 prophecies would lead anybody to believe that the story didn't end yet. So if you're reading the Hebrew scriptures and you're reading the Old Testament, like, and you end at Malachi, even if you ended with the Maccabean story, even if you ended it there, it's just not ended. It's a to-be-continued series. Ending it here with all these incredible events happening. Remember, like, the 10 plagues? Like, these incredible stories happening. Ending it here would be like ending the Infinity War series right now. And then you're like, what happened? You need an ending. I'll give you the ending. Thanos is dead. Okay, I'm just kidding. I don't know. The, I, don't, I just like ruined it all for you. If I'm right, you owe me 50 bucks. No, um, but it's like ending a series that you don't know the end to. You're just like, well, how does it end? So we see that it's a story unfinished, and that's just weird. And so what Matthew is purporting here is that Yeshua, or Jesus, is the one that has come to finish the Jewish story. And that's why he calls him Jesus Christ, or more specifically, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the one that will save his people from sin. So what's sin? Literally means missing the mark. And it's referred to kind of like a moral failing. But it's not just about moral failings. These moral failings of sin have a consequence. There is a disruption in the covenant or relationship or something that was intended to be good and healthy between God and us, and also with each other. Jesus has come to rescue his people from this failure. This is different from other religions. This is different because he's not just a teacher come to teach us something. He's not the Dalai Lama. Teachers can help, but they cannot do something that is extensively needed in our world today. I'm gonna give you a brief little story. There's a movie that that people may have watched when you were younger, and it's called Evan Almighty. Bruce Almighty too, but Evan Almighty was the second, uh, second part of this series. Uh, I just want to say these aren't Christian movies. It, it, they were entertaining, and they added to a biblical, familiar biblical story that we knew, but the concept itself is not Christian. Uh, it was a concept that was very familiar, that is familiar in a lot of our contemporary and current philosophies and ideologies. In one particular story, the character that was supposed to play God in this story tells the protagonist's wife, all she really needed to do was Ark. Like Noah's Ark, but Ark with a K. And that's an act of random kindness, right? Act of random kindness. Uh, except, you know, it's an Ark except with a K. Just one act of random kindness a day, and then you will make the world a better place. And we've seen variations like this throughout even just our lifetime. We've seen variations uh, like this, but I would imagine way more throughout history. Ark, or 
be good to each other. Have you heard that? Be good to each other. Or have you heard, pay it forward? Have you heard, pay it forward? Uh, be better, be best, whatever it is. Uh, we, we have these sayings. And these are the things that we do. And if we do that, we will save ourselves and the world. If you think like that, though, then I think you're hopelessly wrong. Don't get me wrong. Ark is good. We should be good to each other. We should do better. We should be the best. But will it save us? To think that this will save humanity will make us forlorn. It will make, it's a useless naivete. That, that's what I think. And it's people, like, it's like if you read a self-help book and you really, all you really think is, all I got to do is think positive, then I'll make a million bucks. Um, and, or people who think that the only reason you're not getting healed right now is because you don't have enough faith. Or something like, you got to think, like, you got to get more faith, got to get more positive in you. All these things are the same thing. It's just covered with a different kind of language. And there is something that you don't get if you think like this. No matter how hard you try, we cannot escape failure. And the most inescapable reality that we have that can prove this is death, is death. And no matter how many good things you do, it will not undo this bad thing. Like you can't bring someone's, you can't bring someone flowers to their grave every day for the rest of your life thinking that it will undo the fact that you ran over her while you were drunk. It doesn't undo that. So you can't think that all these good things will undo the heinous things that we have. And then there are failures we have as a human race. Systems in place that make us hate each other. Politics that, have you heard politics is like a pendulum? But these days it just swings further and further away from each other. That if you're on the other side, then you're just insane. And there are failures that we have as a community where there's hurt, pain, and depression. Uh, because we were supposed to be this close-knit family and we were supposed to have friends, but these kind of just all escape us. And then there are failures we have personally. Um, it, I didn't sin. It's not my fault. You know, it's your sin. Your fault that I'm this way. And, you know, it's interesting that we kind of not want to put it on us. But here is what Matthew is saying. As you get to know Jesus, the creator God, you get to come to the realization of the reality of your situation. A person in need of saving, a people in need of saving. Saving from what? From sin. Jesus is the one who has come to save us from sin. So I'm going to finish up here, finishing the story. So this gospel account begins not only by showing us who Jesus is, but what he's about to do, what he's here to do. It also brings us to recognition, or to, just to recognize that we are sinners in need of a savior. And it's easy to acknowledge, yes, the world needs saving. The world is crazy. They're all crazy out there. Even, you might even think, my family's crazy. My, uh, like, my mom, she's just out there. And, and then I, I guess that's a start. That's a start. But reading the Bible also shows us that you need saving. You need saving. Not him. You, not her. You need saving. It's almost very it's just too convenient. And we easily just diagnose someone else's sins. Like, I know what his problem is. I know what her problem is. When it comes to you, I'm not that bad. Ugh, just lay off, okay? I tried my best. But if we're honest with ourselves, who are we good to? 
who do we try our best for? Isn't it very subjective? Like who we like and only at the time because that can change. I might not like you tomorrow. But even despots kill those who will go against them, but they would send flowers to their mama Mother's Day, right? The only real difference between, I think, us and them is probably just the power that you have. And simply saying things like arc or be good to each other totally ignores this reality. Do you think that ISIL or ISIS, whatever they're called, they're driven by evil? Don't you think that they're doing what they believe to be good? So even our values of what is good is different and even a random act of kindness could completely be different to that person that's receiving it? And what about if the Western response to ISIS? Don't you think that they think what they th are doing is good? So simply saying ARC will to save us is like saying someone with a parasitic infection uh, all you got to do is drink more water. You are not acknowledging the true depth, complexity, and severity of the problem. So if we're honest with ourselves, the world is this way because there's something wrong with us. Something's wrong with us. And this is the Bible's fundamental diagnosis of who we are. And that's why we put the Bible against ourselves as a test. And then we can't, we can't move from this chapter until we realize. We cannot move from this chapter until we realize I am in such dire need of a savior, I can't even function properly. The rescue that we see is a solution that can only come from outside us. Socrates and Plato's even knew this, that we can't save ourselves. Humanity cannot save humanity, but it needs to come from outside and it needs to come into humanity, from outside humanity. And Matthew's gospel is showing us that the solution here is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you understand this, you have to do something. You can either reject the biblical claim or you can accept it. You can't ignore it because what is being uh, shown to us here is here is the medication for your infection, for your disease. Here's the solution so you can either take it or not. And it says here in verse 22, all this place took uh, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's a second name that's given here, and that's from Isaiah 7. And this time it's directly referencing the scriptures, not just alluding to. In the Old Testament, the promised son never comes to Isaiah in his time. From the house of David, never comes. But when the promised son comes, his name will be Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? Emmanuel, which is with us, and El, which means God. God with us. So if your name was Emmanuel, it meant that God was with us. So some people named their sons and daughters. Uh, now it's M, right, with an E, because Greek changed I to E. All this changes. But uh, it meant that God was with us. So parents would use his name to remind ourselves, oh, God is with us. Emmanuel, right? But if you see what Matthew is building up to, what prophecy is this fulfilling? Who is this God with us? Is it God is with us or God is with us? You see what's going on here? Is God, you know, just God with us and now thank you for reminding me through this baby or God is with us? And it's this very God who now we're starting the third part of the trilogy and finishing the story that he started. And the thing that we see is pointing with God with us is the tabernacle, 
which meant dwelling, God is dwelling, the temple, which God is dwelling with us. Now we see this person's name literally is God, is with us. God dwelling with his people has now come to fruition, and that's why his name is Emmanuel. For the Christian, God is not some old guy with a white beard, white flowing beard, and it just can't be any beard, or just some abstract concept. For the Christian, God is Jesus, a real historical person that walked on this earth. If you ask a Christian, how do you know that God exists? The answer is Jesus. Jesus. How do you know that that the God who exists loves you? Jesus. We're done now, but I just want to take this time for you to get it to sink in. I put a lot out there. I really just wanted to give you as much as I could of chapter one. And, uh, you know, I promise you the next ones won't be as long. I just wanted to really start out with a really good foundation. But I want you to think about it. What does chapter one mean then for us as a Christian? Yeshua, Emmanuel. What does it mean that Jesus has come down to save you from your failures and your sin? And that's the question we face as we finish chapter one. Let's take this time to pray.